Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. It is my pleasure to welcome you here this evening on behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, and the Library Boards of Trustees and Directors and the staff. This evening, we are honored to have one of the premier historians of the 20th and 21st centuries here to discuss his latest work, The Making of African American, The Four Great Migrations. Dr. Ira Berlin was born in New York City where he attended public schools. In 1970 at the University of Wisconsin, he received a doctorate in history with high honors. He teaches at the University of Maryland where he served as Dean of Undergraduates and Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities. He presently is Distinguished University Professor in the, the Department of History. Throughout his illustrious career, Dr. Berlin has received many honors as scholar in history. In 1990, he was appointed Distinguished Teacher Scholar, and in 1991, the Maryland Association for Higher Education named him the state's outstanding educator. Dr. Berlin has written extensively on African American history in the 18th and 19th centuries particularly on Southern and African-American life. His first book, which is a classic, and many of you who have had undergraduate courses in history will know this work, Slaves Without Masters, The Free Negro in the Antebellum South, which was published in 1975, won the best first book prize awarded by the National Historical Society. He is the founder of the Freedmen and Southern Society Project, which he directed until 1991. The project's multi-volume Freedom, a Documentary History of Emancipation has twice been awarded the Thomas Jefferson Prize of the Society for History in the Federal Government, as well as the J. Franklin Jameson Prize of the American Historical Association for Outstanding Editorial Achievement, and the Abraham Lincoln Prize for Excellence in Civil War Studies from the Lincoln and Soldiers Institute of Gettysburg College. His numerous articles and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the National America, the Nation, American Historical Review, Journal of American History, the Journal of Social History, the Journal of Negro History, William and Mary Quarterly, and other popular and scholarly periodicals. He has served, has received several and numerous fellowships, and the list is so long that I will spare you from reading the entire list. <laughs> but lastly, I would say, because his bio biography is quite extensive, is that um, he, in 1999, the Humanities Council of Washington named Dr. Berlin Outstanding Public Humanities Scholar of the Year. In 2002, he served as president of the Organization of American Historians, and in 2004, he was elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And the list goes on. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ira Berlin, professor of U.S. History at the University of Maryland College Park, 
distinguished scholar, educator, writer, editor, and documentarian to the Interpret Free Library. Well, it is, it is a special privilege to be here at the, at the Pratt, at the Pratt Library. Uh, my first work, uh, my doctoral dissertation was on free people of color in the South, and of course, as many of you know, Baltimore had the largest free black population, not simply in the South, but in the, in the, in the nation. Uh, so it was a natural stop, and I spent lots of time in this, uh, in this building. It didn't quite look as spiffy as it does now, so I'm delighted to see uh, that, as, that as well. And I was also delighted to learn as I was given a little tour of the building that this building was built in 1931 at the great depth of the Great Depression, demonstrating that even in hard times we can do great, we can do great, great things. And that's a nice reminder to have at a time when we seem to uh, seem to have kind of given up our expectations to do to do great things. Well, thank you very much, Vivian, for that generous, very generous introduction, and to Judy Cooper for inviting me, inviting me here to talk about the, the making of African America and uh, to say something about the history of that book. Uh, and of course, books also have, uh, have history, and this one, this one does uh, as well. Most of my books have kind of evolved over, over time, but this one arrived in one of those kind of great, great moments, and I can almost tell you the precise time uh, uh, when, it, uh, when it began to, began to dawn on me, the, the place, uh, uh, and hence uh, the history. Uh, January 1st, uh, 1996, an NPR station in Washington. Uh, I was being interviewed about the Emancipation Proclamation, a subject which falls within... Uh, my expertise, uh, uh, and I went through the kind of familiar themes uh, uh, about the origins of that great document, the changing nature of the Civil War, the Union armies, uh, growing dependence on, on black labor, the intensifying opposition to slavery in the North, the interplay between military necessity and abolitionist idealism, I rehearsed uh, the arguments, the debate about the role of Lincoln, the radicals in Congress, the abolitionists in the North, uh, the Union Army in the field, the slaves on the plantations of the, of the South as to the authorship of, of freedom. Uh, in the process, uh, I reviewed uh, my own position that slaves had played a critical role in, uh, in emancipation and uh, a controversy which was once very hot among historians about who freed, the, who freed the slaves, but seemed to have cooled. And then I walked out of that glass, uh, that glass interview uh, booth and saw that that controversy still had, still had life. There was a small knot of black men and women, uh, most of them technicians from the station who were debating the authorship of emancipation and its, and its meaning, and I joined them. But I was struck by the fact that no one in this group was descendant from anybody who had been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. All of them had been born outside of the United States. Uh, as it turns out, in Haiti, Jamaica, one in Britain, a couple in Africa, 
uh, one in Ghana, another, I believe, in, in Somalia. They were all impressed, uh, uh, but not surprised, that slaves had played a part in freeing uh, themselves. Uh, uh, they were deeply interested in, in the events uh, uh, that had brought Lincoln to his uh, decision uh, during the summer of 1862, but they insisted almost to a person that had nothing to do with them. It was simply not their history. It was an interesting history. It was even a heroic history. It just wasn't their history. Now, that conversation weighed upon me as I left the studio, and it clearly has preoccupied me a good deal since. Uh, much of the collective consciousness of black people in mainland North America, what became the United States, uh, uh, the belief that individual men and women's own fate is linked to the larger group is articulated through a common, a common history, a, a particular kind of history, perhaps best captured in the title of John Hope Franklin's uh, a great text, uh, slavery, for free, slavery to Freedom, uh, uh, the centuries of enslavement, uh, freedom amidst uh, the Civil War, uh, uh, the great promise uh, made uh, during Reconstruction and the promise, of course, broken, uh, followed by disenfranchisement, segregation, uh, and then the long struggle uh, 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 for equality capped by a speech uh, on the Lincoln Memorial, uh, a celebration in the Oval Office, a heart-stopping moment on a Memphis motel balcony, uh, and then the euphoria of the elevation of a black man to the presidency. Now that history, that particular history, was so important that long before the latest uh, triumphant uh, uh, chapter, uh, uh, Carter Goodwin, uh, Carter Woodson, an extraordinarily precedent uh, black educator, established the week that would annually be devoted uh, to the contemplation and celebration of of the black experience. And we have since, of course, expanded uh, Negro History Week to Black History a month, and among other reasons, that's why we're, that's why we're here uh, today. Uh, and these commemorations, of course, have been the occasion uh, uh, to reassert the uniqueness of the African-American experience, uh, to reclaim that special identity, and of course they have special importance, uh, social, cultural, and particularly political importance, both within the black community and between the black community and the rest of the, and the, rest of the nation. The significance of history in African-American life uh, gives that disclaimer, not my history, by people of African descent, a particular uh, kind of poignancy, uh, especially in light of the transformation of black society during the last third of the 20th and the first years of the 21st uh, century. Uh, now, during that period, particularly since the passage of the Immigration and Nationality Act in 1965, African-American life, uh, like American life uh, more generally, has been transformed by the arrival of, of millions upon millions of people of foreign birth. Uh, it has made the United States uh, once again into an immigrant society, something that it was not in the middle of the 20th century. And it has generally, and that's generally recognized uh, by most people who pick up a newspaper or even walk down the street of any major American city. But it's also not recognized in a more general form that it has also transformed 
African-American society, that knot of people standing outside the glass booth. Prior uh, to that, uh, the, the passage of that act in 1965, the number of pe black people of foreign birth ri residing in the United States uh, was so tiny as to be almost invisible. According to the 1960 census, the proportion was a, fact was a fraction somewhere far to the right of the, uh, decimal, of the decimal point. And of course, that is not true today. Arriving, the arrival of foreign-born black people began slowly in the 1960s. It increased steadily uh, over the next uh, three uh, decades. During the 1990s, some 900,000 black immigrants entered the United States uh, from the Caribbean. Uh, another 400,000 uh, came uh, from Africa, and others came from uh, Austro-Asia and from Europe as, as well. Uh, the African-American population is profoundly altered. By the beginning of the 21st century, more Africans are arriving in the United States than, arrived, than came in all of the centuries uh, of, the, of, the slave, of the slave trade. Other people of African descent, particularly uh, from the Caribbean, uh, joined uh, uh, that, that influx. Uh, the number of black immigrants was increasing faster than the number of black natives uh, between 1990 and 2000. Uh, black newcomers accounted in that, during that decade for fully a quarter of the growth of the African-American population. In short, black America, like white America, was becoming an immigrant society. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, and perhaps even more so today, one in 20 black American was an immigrant. That's 5% of the population. Almost one in 10 was an immigrant or a child of an immigrant. Uh, and I think we can consider the immigrant experience being a two-generation experience, immigrants and children of immigrants. Uh, in many American uh, cities, the proportion of black people of foreign birth is almost uh, double that. In New York City, uh, always an anomaly, but sometimes a harbinger of change. Uh, immigrants uh, and their children uh, compose uh, over a third, 34% of the uh, black, uh, of the black uh, population. Uh, so at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, one, uh, one uh, demographer uh, predicted uh, that uh, but that uh, oh, within a decade that, that immigrants and their children would make up over 50% of New York's uh, black population. In many ways, large and small, African-American society has begun to, begun to reflect this transition. In New York, uh, the Roman Catholic Diocese has added masses in Ashante and Fonte, uh, while black men and women from various Caribbean islands uh, march in West Indian Day uh, carnivals on Labor Day, uh, celebrate Dominican Day parades in Chicago, Cameroonians uh, celebrate their nation's Independence Day, the DuSable Museum of African American History hosts a Nigerian festival. Uh, uh, to many of these men and women, uh, Juneteenth uh, celebrations are just so much of an afterthought. Not my history. In short, many of these new arrivals frequently echoed the words that I heard outside that radio uh, booth uh, on that January 1st. Uh, uh, 
the struggle of those new residents uh, over the very name African American uh, uh, has become uh, something of a something of a tussle. Uh, they declare themselves Jamaican Americans or Nigerian Americans, uh, uh, shunning the title African Americans. Uh, uh, while others deny uh, the right of native blacks to claim the title of African American since they never been in Africa. They affiliate uh, themselves uh, uh, with the Society for the Advancement of Nigerians, the National Association of Yorba Descendants, uh, uh, various other associations which speak to their immigrant experience uh, rather than the NAACP or the, or the Urban League. Now, behind these prickly matters of nomenclature stand much more substantial issues respecting experience and the meaning uh, that connect uh, to everything from the choice of marriage partners uh, uh, to electoral uh, debates. Uh, you may remember sometimes uh, during the last presidential election when suddenly uh, that black candidate, Barack Obama, was not black enough. Barack Obama claims to be of an African-American heritage, uh, asserted Alan Keyes, uh, a Marylander, by the way, uh, who was also, uh, also running against him uh, in the Senate, uh, for, the, for the Senate seat uh, Obama uh, held, before the, held before the presidency. But we are not from the same heritage. My ancestor toiled in slavery in this country. My consciousness, who I am as a person, has been shaped uh, uh, by that struggle, deeply emotional, deeply painful, uh, with the resulting uh, heritage. Uh, now, we know eventually uh, African Americans came around to embracing uh, Obama, especially when it was discovered that he was too black uh, for some white Americans, <laughs> and especially when he started winning. And then, of course, he won. And now the whole thing seems kind of like a weird somewhat embarrassing aberration, uh, but nonetheless a kind of telling, a kind of telling moment uh, uh, about. Uh, and as I thought about this moment, uh, my moment at NPR, Mr. Obama's uh, uh, momentary failure to be uh, black enough and other such events, uh, what struck me as a historian that this was not the first time that this had happened. Rather, it was just one of many times when it happened, when African-American society was transformed by the arrival of new people who understood themselves and understood their history differently. Indeed, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the black experience in the United States, uh, and the thing perhaps which distinguishes them from other Americans, was the number of times that African-American society had to be remade by an influx of new people. And I believe that African-American history can be understood as a series of migrations and then struggles which follow those migrations. Now, the first of these great migrations was, of course, the transatlantic slave trade, the transit from Africa uh, to uh, America, the dreaded Middle Passage, uh, which perhaps more than any single event has come to epitomize the experience of people of African descent throughout the Atlantic world. The nightmarish weeks, sometimes months, locked in the holes of stinking slave ships uh, speak to those traumatic loss of freedom, the degradation of enslavement, the long years of bondage uh, that followed. 
Perhaps simply because of the enormous horror of the Middle Passage, often it is not treated as an immigration, uh, uh, different than the journey of the Irish uh, from Cork uh, the, uh, to Boston, the Jews from Odessa to New York, the Norwegians from Oslo to Grand, Grand Forks, although these, these migrations also had their night, mo nightmarish moments. The Middle Passage should not be treated the same way. It's a unique event in the history of the world. It is one of the great crimes of history. Uh, it is a moral rupture which defines exactly what humanity is. But it too moved people from here to there. It too transformed the Angolans and Congos and Mandis and Senegambian people into Africans and then into African Americans. Uh, making African America, I take that migration, and then I add to it three other massive passages that swelled over time like some great uh, tsunami, increasing in mass and velocity, engulfing larger and larger numbers of men and women, sweeping them, their loved ones, their possessions into a vortex that nobody could be fully prepared. And if it was that first forcible deportation from Africa during the 17th and 18th centuries that carried roughly some 400,000 of free men and women and transformed those many peoples of Africa into Africans and African Americans, it was followed by other great migrations. The second forced transfer, more than twice as large as the first transported some one million men and women from the Atlantic seaboard, Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, North Carolina, into the southern interior uh, during the first half of the 19th century to create yet another slave regime in the Deep South, a second Middle Passage, the transcontinental slave trade that transformed tobacco and rice cultivators into the growers of cotton and sugar and set African-American life on yet another new pass. And that course changed in the middle decades of the 20th century when now six million black people, 30 times the number of that original African transit, fled the south for the cities of the north, uh, making making urban wage workers out of sharecroppers, and again, forcing a reconstruction of black life in the United States. And finally, at the end of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century, peoples of African descent from all over the world, from Africa, from the Caribbean, from South America, from Europe, again have changed or are changing now the composition of the culture of black people in the United States. The pace of these massive migrations increases over time with their size, ever greater numbers arriving in an ever shorter in an ever shorter period. These four migrations are a way of understanding the course of African American life over what is a relatively short period of historical time, that is less than less than four, four centuries. Uh, each of these migrations incorporated in various proportions unspeakable brutality, dispossession, death. Uh, they pride also the occasion for unbelievable acts of kindness and generosity, generating astounding creativity and borning yet new life. 
And while it's impossible, obviously, to calculate fully the losses and the gains, happily we could say over time the latter increased and the former de decreased. Uh, none of these great passages, however, are free from tragedy or triumph, from moral degradation uh, and moral elevation. They, but they changed the migrants' world and everything that surrounded the migrants' world. Statuses were transformed. Cultures were remade. Politics were reshaped. Uh, whether the transit was from Africa to America, from Virginia to Alabama, from Biloxi to Chicago, from Lagos to the Bronx, these upheavals that accompany the physical uprooting mark the lives of generation after generation of black people. For many, perhaps for the vast majority, this was the single most important event in their lives, a moment that would mark them and mark their descendants from ever. The march from the seaboard to Arkansas during the middle years of the 19th century deeply affected one Helen Odom's grandmother. Much as the 17th and 18th century Atlantic transit had earlier burdened uh, her own forebearers. Years later, in the fourth decade of the 20th century, Grandmother Odom's passage still gripped her granddaughter. Quote, I heard this told over and over so many times, many times before my grandmother de died, Helen Odom's uh, told an interviewer for the Public Works Project uh, during the 1930s. Quote, it seemed it was the greatest event in her life, Odoms reiterated. She told of many small things that I can't remember, but clearly Grandmother Odoms never forgot her long march to Arkansas, and neither did her granddaughter. What differences did these great migrations make? In Making African America, I argue they made crucial differences. Uh, much like the centuries of slavery or the decades of segregation, the great migrations are one of the distinguishing markers of the African American experience. From Frederick Douglass's narrative to Paul Dunmar's Sport of the Gods, to Richard Wright's A Native Son, to Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, to Toni Morrison's Jazz. Jazz. My great migrations have been as much a part of African-American literature as they have been of African-American life. And much the same can be said of African-American musicals, from the spirituals of the Jubilee Singers uh, to the blues of Bessie Smith uh, to the and Riley and and B.B. King uh, to Langston Hughes poems to Gordon Parks photographs to August Wilson plays uh, and of course uh, Jacob Lawrence's great migration migration series which my publisher with a little arm twisting put on the cover of <laughs> of the of the book these extraordinary works and the symbols of the migratory theme the slave ship the auction block, the railroad pointing north, announced the movement as a central theme of African-American history. Langston Hughes was doubtless not the only young black man or woman in St. Louis who would periodically, quote, walk down to the Santa Fe station and stare at the railroad tracks, just as Otis Redding was only one of many who was sitting on the top, top of the bay calculating the benefits of a trip from Georgia to Frisco. 
Now, one of the ways in which the great migrations shaped African-American life was to create a tension within the black experience, as in not my history. Is Obama black enough? Which required years and sometimes generations uh, to sort out. And over the long haul in North America, this can be understood in a variety of different conflicts uh, from the 17th century and 18th century as Africans and African-Americans sort out who they are. Uh, between migrants who are shipped uh, from Maryland and other places in the Upper South uh, uh, to the Cotton South uh, during that second Middle Passage, or migrants who come from the South, uh, that rural peasantry uh, who meet head-on in urban and often urbane proletariat, uh, the so-called old settlers of the North uh, during, the 20th, uh, during the 20th century. And there are tensions and lots of them. The unification of African-American societies which follow these migrations for the extent that they are unified is one of the great stories of African-American life. And we can talk perhaps more, perhaps more about that. It's actually interesting that these stories appear more in African-American literature, which in some ways suggests uh, that people who write fiction are a little braver than students of, students of history. Uh, but we can certainly see those themes emerge from one of the great, from uh, any, any list of the great American, uh, African-American novels. Rather, let me use my remaining, remaining time to focus on another effect of the great migrations, and that is the elevation of place in African-American life. Because one of the ironies of, of migrations, one of the great ironies of diasporas, is that diasporas create place. Between these massive movements of black men and women stand periods of great physical, although rarely social, status. During those periods, black people develop enormously deep attachments to place, the eerie beauty of the Sea Islands, the rich alluvial soils of the Delta, the maze of streets and alleys of Southside Chicago, that baddest part of town. In such places, men and women work together, married, raise their children, worship, socialized in ways that created trust and built solidarity so that their attachment to place became enormously deep. And we see that in literature, we see that in song, we see that in art. Uh, Langston Hughes uh, spoke of the one-way ticket from the South, but then Robert Johnson wrote of the sweet home Chicago. Attachments to place riveted black people to the familiar ground. To many of them, they could not conceive of life different from that place. I do believe, declares Maya Angelou into one of her own peons to her sense of southerness, that once a southerner, always a southerner. Movement and place. In the making of African America, I call this the contrapuntal narrative, roots and roots, R-O-O-T and R-O-U-T-E-S, 
fluidity and fixity. The contrapuntal pattern, the moving back and forth over this three and a half centuries between times of massive movement and then times of deep rootedness. It rips across those four centuries of black life in mainland North America and then the United States. Uh, this alternating and overlapping pattern of the massive impact of movement and then the sense of deep rootedness, it touches all matters of the African American experience from language to theology, from cuisine to music. Over the course of those 400 years through slavery and, pa and freedom, the contrapuntal narrative, perhaps more than any other, informed the development of African American society, a way of thinking and a way of acting as black society was unraveled and then forced to renew its, itself. It produced on one hand, that kind of malleable, flexible cultural style, which has become a touchstone of African-American life, recognizable in such spheres as art and politics in such different times as the post-Civil War Jubilee and later interwar uh, cultural renaissances, as in Harlem and in Chicago. It created, on the other hand, a passionate attachment to place reflected in the earthy idioms of the rural south, uh, the smash-mouth street jive of the modern hood. Its drama could be played out in the grand oratory of James Fortin or Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington or Martin Luther King, as well as the anonymous dirt verbal duels of hollers and toasts and the dozens and other modes of signifying. Taking together movement and place informed the lives of black people in different ways, uh, from enslaved tobacco hands and urban free people of color in the 19th century to the fastidious black bourgeoisie, free-spirited zoot suiters in the 20th century, hip-hop artists and button-down puppies in the 21st century. That cultural malleability was reflected in other aspects of black life. Commenting that he had been forced, uh, commenting on the peoples that he had forced into the whole of his slave ship, one 18th century slave captain noted, quote, the facility which they form new connections, often reinforced in the words of yet another slave captain, having partaken in the same food, having been slept on the same voyages, the same planks uh, during that voyages, they became shipmates, a kind of kin that would reputed a century later in the coffles which transported black people from, as slaves from Virginia to Mississippi. Or again, another century later, in the boxcars that would carry African Americans from Mississippi to Chicago. And then recently reenacted as black people go from Accra uh, to New York. No aspect of of black life in the United States has been untouched by these repeated passages and this contrapuntal pattern of movement and movement in place. Place gains significance uh, because it had to be reconstituted again and again from remembered fragments of a pre-migration past. New circumstances of that post-migration world and they had to be somehow joined together. The difficulties 
of reconstructing, of preserving sounds, tastes, smells, then bump up against the realities of having to learn new languages, dealing with new food stocks, imagining and, and addressing new landscapes. At times, men and women labor to preserve their cultural baggage, maintain their languages, recall those cuisines, understand and reconstruct rites of passages of the old world, the ways of their parents brought children into the world, celebrated coming of ages, buried their dead. This process, the very definitions of movement and place are contested. Free meant to be sometimes, sometimes it meant material losses. Sometimes it meant social dislocations. Sometimes it meant spiritual fragmentation. Yet sometimes it signaled material gain, social improvement, and spiritual renewal. In freedom and in slavery, black people twisted the meaning, thus transforming places of repression into launching pads of liberation, movements of confinement into routes of escape. What was generally true of these tropes was even truer of these great migrations. The powerful combination of movement and place going back and forth informed the making and remaking of African-American life. Slave ships and Africa, slave coffles to black belt plantations, northbound trains to the ghetto were critical to the formation of a black society over the entire sweep of African American of African American history as fluidity and fixity, each representing ways in which African American life is, is remade. Now these multiple passages which would join worlds that were lost to worlds whose full dimensions could barely be imagined even by the most precedent uh, of peoples of necessity the unfamiliar required innovation, novel circumstances in which black people again and again found themselves placed a premium on adaptation. And these strategies were spun out in endless varieties for the contingencies created by migrations required that old verities be rethought and new truths be reinvented. Few of these, of course, survived long enough on the landscape of rapid change because they required reinvention of self and society, creating new patterns of thought, new patterns of action, in which originality is always prized, as in a John Coltrane rift, as in a Toni Morrison novel, as in a Richard Pryor skit, as in an LL Cool J rap. <laughs> Got it. New forms, new structures, set new boundaries, created new polarities, which emerged quickly in these massive movements of Africans and Creoles, of slave and free, of newcomers and old settlers, of homeboys and street dudes. Uh, these new forms delineate a societies that are emerging in the immense wave of these transfers of people, which in some ways define those new orders but then complicate them immediately because the circumstances are always different depending on what cultural baggage people carried, the nature of their new habitat, and dozens of other things. The culture of black people 
in transit from Africa across the continent, from south to north, then from all parts of the globe to the United States, made and remade, not by maintaining or capturing the old in some reified form, but by always creating something new, by disentangling, by decoupling, uh, by creating new social and cultural landscapes. So when we are looking for the sources of African-American life and distinguish it, distinguishing the features that the Great Migration have created, perhaps we cannot say, not my history. Thank you so much. Some, uh, some time for Q&A. Good. In 2011, is, is reunification of the black people possible? And what would the fifth migration look like if you were to be predictive of the future? Well, I think that process of unification is, is, under, you know, is underway. And it's taking place in the kind of herky-jerky ways that most cultural processes you know, take, you know, take place. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes you see it, you know, in a kind of seamless way, and sometimes it's a kind of, kind of jarring way, which suddenly, you, you know, you have a kind of double take. So I'll give you an example. Uh, last year, about this time, I was asked to uh, go to a book fair uh, for uh, raising money for local libraries. And as a historian, of course, I love libraries, so I'm there. Now, unfortunately, they, they, they scheduled this fundraiser for Mother's Day. It turns out that's not a place you take your mom. <laughs> so I'm sitting there with a bunch of other authors, and nobody has, nobody has shown up. And we're all kind of looking at each other, you know, to, out of the corner of their eyes, figuring who's going to bolt first <laughs> and, and go, go home. And along comes this uh, woman, and she buys three of my books. Boom, boom, boom. I say, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to hang around here. Uh, so I say, you have to sit down. We're going to talk about this. You know, I said, why are you? You know, why, why have you bought my? You know, bought, bought these books? And she says, the people in my church don't know their history. Aha! Uh -huh. Now, what did she mean by that? Actually, the people in her church, who are mostly immigrants, probably do know their history, but they don't know her history. <laughs> So you see that, you know, you suddenly see that, you know, that friction, that friction comes up. Now, so that process is going on, but I say, you know, it's kind of uneven, kind of uneven way, and, you know, it's, can, you know, it's, connecting, it's connecting up, and sometimes it's disconnecting, and it has to do with, you know, who plays, you know, basketball and who plays soccer. It has to do with who eats French fries and who eats fufu. You know, uh, so it has to do with all, you know a lot of a lot of different a lot of different things. So that's that's what I would you know that's the way I would think about that. Yeah. Hello, my name is Carlos Palmer. I just wanted to first of all thank you for the fact that you've even taken such an interest in in African American history because I feel that the more that we know about each other, the more it unifies us instead of separates us. And I wanted to know what made you become interested in such a subject matter. Uh huh. Uh, well, first, first of all, I would say 
one of the ways I would, I, I, you're not the first one to ask me that question, I have to tell you. So I've thought about it. One of the things I would say is that as a historian, you're always interested in big questions. And there's no bigger question to understand, you know, than in, if you're a historian of the United States and the question of slavery. Uh, it's at the center of our creation of our economy. It's the center of the creation of our politics. It's the center of the creation of our society. So I would say, I would say that. I'd also say, as a, another kind of disclaimer, is that I don't really know. <laughs> uh, that you get interested in things and, you know, and then it's like pulling a sweater and then the more you know, the more you want to know, the more you want to know, the more you want to know, and suddenly you've got all of this knowledge and you discover that all of the knowledge you have actually is evidence of your ignorance because there's so many other things that you do want to know. I, I'd say that too. I'd also say on a personal level, uh, I was in school during the 60s, during the civil rights movement. I think probably we all wanted to make our work consonant with our politics, and hence that probably was a... That was, so somewhere in there, there are pieces of an explanation that I haven't fit all together. You can fit them all together. That would be, that would be helpful to me. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's ease, but I would argue that each of these four migrations are, in fact, qualitatively different in all kinds of ways, that the, that the transatlantic slave trade is different than the internal slave trade. After all, the people who, you know, who uh, begin to move during the 19th century, during that great second middle passage, are at that point second, third, perhaps fourth generation Americans. They, they've mastered the language. They've mastered the landscape. They've mastered their masters. They know who they're, deal they know who they're dealing with. Very different experience than those Africans who are coming over in the 17th and 18th century. I would argue that the people who are going from south to north, you know, now we're going from, as you say, from forced migrations to free migrations. But then the differences between forced and free, if somebody says during the height of the Great Depression, because they've gotten money from the New Deal to stop planting cotton, I want you and your family to get off my plantation, or I'm going to shoot you, your wife, your kids, and your dog not exactly a free that's not exactly you know a, you know a free migrant. so so forced and free forced and free become categories which you know uh, you know if somebody's involved in the war of all against all in Nigeria you know uh, so 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 each of these migrations in many ways are different than the different than the other so what you're looking for you try to deal with the differences and look for you know, a shared, you know, something that they're, something that they're shared. And that's what I try to do in uh, the making of African America. Thank you. Uh, Two more questions. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for the evening. And, uh, and I uh, bought the book last, last week and read it in a couple of days and really enjoyed it. And I, not, and I noticed that you uh, dedicated the book to Dr. Uh, John Hope Franklin, uh, the uh, great African-American historian. And 
and you list him as your friend, teacher, and scholar. I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit of uh, your relationship uh, and what you got from uh, being a, a mentee of uh, Dr. John Hope Franklin. Well, uh, there's so many things to say about John Hope. Uh, of course, he, you know, he's just passed and um, missed. Uh, John Hope Franklin's own doctoral dissertation was on free people of color in North Carolina that he, that he wrote. Uh, he wrote it under very different circumstances than I wrote it for you know, some of the reasons here. Uh, when he went to uh, the libraries, uh, they didn't exactly know what to do with a young scholar from Harvard who just happened to be black. So they told him, well, uh, you can't really work here in the reading room at the North Carolina State Archives, but we'll have the janitor bring the records to you in the garage. Uh, so, you know, he's kind of a pioneer. Uh, he wrote on the same subject that I did. Uh, he, when I found out about them, sometimes you're worried that people own subjects and uh, they declare possessions. And, of course, you know, he had, of course, much greater status than I did. But John Hope uh, embraced my work and encouraged it and taught me more than a few tricks. So I guess that was the beginning, and of course after that there are many, many, many other, many, many other connections uh, over the, over the, uh, over the years when we, went from that kind of peculiar, uh, teacher scholar to a relationship of, uh, relationship of friendship, and um, I value value all of those things. He's an extraordinary, not simply an extraordinary scholar, really an extraordinary man. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.